What does pedophilia, baseball, and intelligent design have in common? <laughs> well, there's a loaded question. They're all topics discussed on this week's Reasonable Doubt. Welcome to Reasonable Doubt, your skeptical guide to religion. News, views, and counter-apologetics for those who won't just take things on faith. I'm Jeremy Bean. I'm your host, and thanks for listening in. Here's my co-hosts, David Fletcher. What's happening, everybody? And Luke Galen. Hi. We got some news to start off with today. It looks like the Vatican diplomat from the Roman Catholic Church has come to the U.S. to address the clergy sexual abuse crisis for the first time since the Los Angeles Archdiocese paid out significantly. If you weren't paying attention to that story when it happened, here's a little bit of information on it. Apparently, the Los Angeles Roman Catholic Archdiocese agreed to pay $660 million to people who claimed they were abused by priests. The Associated Press called this the biggest clergy abuse settlement ever. Apparently, it's to resolve about 508 claims. Many of them are going decades in the past. But other people have mentioned that there might be an ulterior motive to it. No. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they think it's to avoid the trial that was scheduled to begin on July 16th. Apparently, they were in negotiations with the victims, the alleged victims, I suppose. Uh, uh, I don't think they're alleged anymore. I guess they're not once alleged they anymore out. once the settlement, uh, mm -hmm. settlement is an admission of guilt. But the apparently they had been in negotiations for something like four and a half years, and they finally agreed to settle just a week before the trial would begin. Cardinal Roger Mahoney, who oversees the Los Angeles Archdiocese, was going to have to testify so. But now, luckily, he doesn't, so we don't have to worry about any, you know, truth coming out, <laughs> which, is, which is reassuring. Right. This, this is interesting. They're actually spinning this as them being sort of the heroes in this situation. This is from the Associated Press. A Vatican spokesman commenting on the settlement said that the Catholic Church is trying to be a protagonist in the struggle against pedophilia. Thank goodness they're finally on the case because they can be such a force for good in this uh, realm of pedophilia. Yeah, um, he over and over again he emphasizes that child molestation is not just a Catholic problem and he's implying in this statement that uh, other institutions could learn a thing or two about how to deal with their, their problems of abuse by looking to the Catholic Church. As an example, <laughs> here's a quote. Uh, the problem of abuse of childhood and its adequate protection certainly does not regard only the Catholic Church, but also many other institutions, and it is right that these take the necessary decisions as well. He also said that other organizations should deal with abuse as publicly as the Catholic Church has. And that's quite a precedent to set. Now, has anyone said that this is only a Catholic problem? Are there a lot of people accusing only Catholics of, of molesting children? Because I, I don't know that that's 
Yeah, what is the Protestant response to the uh, Catholics? Uh, it's well, I mean, this is a this is a typical uh, apologetic move that they've used in the past. They've often said in, with past sexual abuse scandals, and there seem to be more and more of them coming around. That you know, okay, well, criticize the Catholic Church as you may. Uh, sexual abuse takes place every year in the public schools. It's happening at an alarming rate in many institutions. And that's meant to somehow excuse the Catholic Church, Catholic churches, or not not excuse it, but to say, look, this is no different than and no worse than any other situation. Right. Sure, we screwed up, but so does everyone else. So right. it's okay. Well, it is different because in the public schools, if you're accused of sexually abusing somebody, you're suspended. They don't with move you to another pay. school <laughs> yeah, oh. until the issue is resolved. Yes, they don't relocate you in another school district. School administrators don't try to deal with the matter internally before alerting authorities and that sort of thing. Or if they do, they're going to be in big trouble because of it. But I think I think the biggest difference is the fact that children are not taught that their teachers are the spokespeople of God. Right. They don't have a direct line to the Almighty. Uh, they're not being told by these people. God says, it's okay that I do this to you. Well, maybe they are. But uh, whether directly or indirectly, because it's a priest, because it's someone who represents the church and, in turn, God, this is much more malicious than a teacher. I think it's a lot easier to turn in a teacher who's molested you than it is to say, um, the guy with the pointy hat who represents God, yeah, he touched me <laughs> where my bathing suit covers. Right. That's never addressed, and then the whole mm-hmm. celibacy issue is never addressed. What they, right. what they try to do is they, they say it's homosexuality in the church, you know. So uh, in, the, in the other article we had, the Phil Magnin, the president of the Biblical Family Advocate, <laughs> says, how can this uh, be possible when homosexuals only make a small percentage of the population? It appears that there are a disproportionate number of homosexual men in the Catholic clergy. So he's trying to then say it's not the church, it's not any of the divine authority, it's, right. it's not nothing about the celibacy thing, it's homosexuals in the clergy. Right. Heaven forbid we take a critical look at religious institutions and how they're organized. It, you know, it has to be some other demonized group, some other scapegoat. And that goes down a lot better with not only the Protestant, but also the Catholic, uh, the conservatives who don't like homosexuals to begin with. They can then say it's not a problem with their institution. It's, it's the those, problem of it's the gays. gays right. people yep. and the there may be a larger percentage of homosexuals in the Catholic clergy than there is in the population at large. I think a lot of Catholic youth who are maybe feeling homosexual feelings but know that that's wrong because they've been told that that's wrong go into the clergy because there they don't have to worry about sex. They don't have to deal with those issues. But I don't think that those are necessarily the people who are Causing the abuse. Right. But the belief is they're equating being a homosexual with being a pedophile. Because to them, homosexuality is deviant sexual behavior. And deviant behavior is deviant behavior. So they're not going to split hairs as they see it. Right. So foot fetishes and homosexuality (laughs) and pedophilia are all the same. Even though it's not pedophilia, but if you look at the Ted Haggard homosexuality scandal here, this is what happens when you have sexual inclinations that are then suppressed rather than, let's say, if we had a more liberal or non-religious 
institution that said, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to be is okay as long as you don't do this to other people. If you have homosexual inclinations, that's fine. They wouldn't feel the need to then suppress that or, and, yeah. and it come out in unacceptable ways. You could get it uh, somewhere other than a uh, meth-selling uh, prostitute. Hey, hey, he wasn't a prostitute. Because family values. He was a masseuse. Was All a masseuse, he did right. was massage Ted Haggard's prostate, and that was it. Uh, you know, that's an important service. Yeah, absolutely. Then, so they claim that they are dealing with things publicly, that they should be looked up to in the way that they've been handling this. <laughs> that seems like the biggest run around the facts that you could possibly say. The Los Angeles Times uh, did a great piece where they looked at this a little bit more skeptically. And here's a quote from that article. But attorneys and advocates for the victims said they were skeptical of Mahoney's timing for the settlement, noting that the pact announced Saturday after four and a half years of negotiation came just before the first case was set to go to trial with the cardinal slated to testify. You know, I hadn't even noticed that timing. They're right. That's an amazing coincidence. (laughs) Uh, He avoided the number one thing he fears, says David Clossley, the National Director of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, which is disclosing under oath how much he knew and how little he did about predatory priests. Attorney Freeberg said part of the reason why the amount for the settlement is so high is because the archdiocese delayed the settlement with scorched earth legal tactics. Mm -hmm. It's been like painful dental surgery trying to get this information. (laughs) Having fought this battle for so long, I'm absolutely convinced we'll never know the whole story. As the first half a dozen of her cases were to go to trial, Freeberg said... The archdiocese turned over one file on each abuser marked personal containing routine business matters. But then she had to file a motion to compel the archdiocese to provide the confidential files containing the history of abuse complaints and how they were handled. It goes on and on like that. So the Catholic Church was not dealing with things publicly. Well, they, they are now in the that it's all over the news. Yeah. But Well, arguably, even the settlement is an attempt to try to keep from releasing more, keep their people from going up on the stands arguably, and saying I think, things. I, I don't know the other point you could argue. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's the point of the settlement. I, I mean, they're saying they're trying to end the people's pain. Well, why didn't they do that four years ago or, better yet, three decades ago? After the Boston scandal a couple of years ago mm-hmm. broke, uh, that they was did the a, first one that really. That, uh, yeah, that was one of the first major payouts. Mm-hmm. They did a survey, and it showed that seventy-four percent of Catholics in the Boston Archdiocese uh, still thought their bishops were doing a good job, even though it was at that time that it was coming out that they were moving priests to different parishes. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were trying to pressure people not to go to the authorities, but if the priests knew about the situation, it, they were supposed to keep it from the authorities until they had finished their internal investigation. In fact, if I'm correct, that goes right up to the current pope. Yeah, well, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, what does that mean? He sent a letter to all Catholic bishops declaring the church's investigations into claims of child sex abuse were subjected to pontifical secrets and were not to be reported right. to law enforcement until investigators were completed on pain of excommunication. 
Oh, no. Yeah, so some of these priests are not getting excommunicated, but uh, the threat is there to excommunicate them if they report these things. But what I get a kick out of is the Associated Press report mentioned that this current pope has already taken a strong stance against these things. Yeah, he's been tougher than than John Paul II, reportedly. Without actually looking at (laughs) the fact that when he was not the pope, he helped pave the way for some of these Well, he's making up for past sins is what he's doing. I suppose so. Cardinal Mahoney had my favorite quote of this whole scandal. To the victims, he said, quote, Your life, I wish, were like a VHS tape. We could put the tape in and delete those years of difficulty and misery. There's something that just doesn't uh, work in that analogy for me. Well, it's... it's, uh it's like the Catholic Church. It's an obsolete medium. Well, even aware that they're not, be- that they're not Betamax, then. That's what yeah, absolutely. Given that the, the decline of the mainstream Protestant uh, and Catholic enrollments. Then. So the only thing more American than pedophilia in our Catholic Church is, is baseball. Uh, and I think we have a baseball-related story to talk about as well. Faith Night has gone from one team in Nashville in 2002 to 46 teams this year. That's AA, AAA, and even major league teams. Apparently, uh, baseball teams do this promotional stuff, including bobblehead night and free hot dog night. And Faith Night is just another one of the uh, crowd of, of special promotions they have. And this is huge. I mean, it's really taking off. There are a number of owners who are are scared to take on Faith Night or not interested because it's not going to make them as much money as, say, Bobblehead Night. But a number of teams have really embraced this. And I think, personally, it it was the one way they could find to make a night at the ballpark even more boring was to introduce Christian rock music before it. So... That's uh, That was a bold choice, I, I think. The article, which is by Tim O'Keefe. Uh, let's see, who's responsible for this? Oh, this is PBS.org, yep. the Religion and Ethics Weekly. It says that a staple of nearly every faith night is testimony or a story of Christian witness offered by a player or a coach. They modeled it after athletes in action and the fellowship of Christian athletes. Given how articulate most professional athletes and coaches are, I'm sure those are really uh, impressive testimonials. Well, I mean, is it is there any part of American life anymore where we can't be evangelized by somebody? I mean, i got to be honest, I don't go to too many baseball games, but I imagine I'd be quite annoyed if I got to a baseball game and they were preaching at me. Yeah. Not to mention other Christians who aren't evangelicals mm-hmm. or and, Muslims And uh, the Jewish community has Jew- spoken out Jews. against this. Mm-hmm. Well, one could argue that sincere religious people would feel perhaps that their faith is being cheapened in some way or at least used by the people to draw up the sports attendance. So this Absolutely. is, I guess, viewed as equally useful by the baseball promoters as well as the church promoters to say, hey, let's do this. But, you know, maybe people would view, I guess... Oh, I'm just assuming that some of them would view an encroachment of secularism by saying, you know, church is a special place and it should be for special things instead of being melded with the popular culture. But apparently people don't feel that way. They just want probably a, just a family-friendly activity is what they're looking for. In the same way that mega churches have, you know, groups for everything and they have activities, this is yet another expansion of that to 
let's integrate church with right. this other area of secular life. And, but what's what's wrong with just leaving your church for once and not having to bring it with you? <laughs> It's like with these mega churches, you don't go to the gym for aerobics anymore. You do your your right. Christian aerobics. Mm-hmm. You don't go to the coffee house in your in your local town because they have a coffee house in your mega church. And since you can't build a baseball stadium in your church's backyard, you have to bring Christianity to the ballpark with you. At what point can you just relax and take place in society with everybody else? It seems like it's harder and harder uh, uh, for people to function like that anymore. It's unbelievable to me the encroachment that we have on all walks of life. And, I mean, isn't baseball the ultimate secular temple, the baseball stadium? I mean, the house that Ruth built, uh, you know, it's now the house upon the hill that Ruth built. And uh, it just, I feel like it's it's rough enough to sit through nine innings of baseball um, but to have to listen to people testifying before, after, and during. In their defense, though, uh, uh, what they have said is that most of these events, they're not on the, the uh, baseball diamond, but uh, certainly it is a way to draw on the crowds, and it's working, which is yeah. the, the thing that suggests yeah, to me it's going to be around. Uh, one of their a baseball representative is quoted saying, we're taking about 10 to 50% increase for a given faith night. They even have Lutheran night at our very own Tiger Stadium, which is no longer Tiger Tiger Stadium. Lutheran night? Lutheran night, yep. Apparently just for the Lutherans. Do other people get to come? Yeah, well, I, I would hope so. It's sectarian but, uh, night. You have to sit in the bleachers if you're a Catholic. On that. <laughs> Good seats are taken for Segregated seating is the next step, folks. Yeah, pretty soon yeah. it's going to be like soccer games in other parts of the world, only it'll be uh, religious violence. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think the Lutherans are going to be. No, the Lutherans are not known as a particularly games. violent group. Um, <laughs> they they will nail things to your doors, though. You know, they'll nail. A, yeah, they run up to the stadium and and tack a list of demands onto the door. But otherwise, they're they're a generally peaceful lot. Um, Moving on to foreign news, it looks like we have a story from one of the few Muslim nations that is a is a Western power, Turkey. I guess Turkey is considered uh, a Western-style democracy. They're not in they? the EU yet, right? They're not they're, quite they're in the EU. They're trying to get in. But they generally have a history of being the, one of the more moderate countries and, and, and right. with a secular history as well. It was The sure. country was established uh, for the strict separation of, of, I guess, the mosque and state it would be. Tell us about those Turkish scientists. Yeah, well, we have some scientists. some Turkish scientists who have joined the debate on creationism and, uh, and evolution. And uh, many uh, scientists around uh, Europe and the United States have started receiving very impressive-looking volumes of uh, glossy page volumes of uh, creationism from an <laughs> Islamic perspective. Uh, so apparently there are some Turkish scientists that have kind of like, I guess you'd call it the Islamic version of the Discovery Institute, that are financing this. Somebody's paying a lot of money for these things. Yep. But when you look at these, it's basically just like Christian creationism repackaged. I guess that's one step that Turkey is on the cutting edge of modernity and that they have now a <laughs> fundamentalism movement as a reaction to modernity. <laughs> Wonderful. In a, in a weird way, is saying something good about Turkey uh, because sure. the only reason why they could have 
uh, a fundamentalist movement against science mm-hmm. is because science must at least have some sort of prestige there, which That's it doesn't of the theories have in of, other areas. Of fundamentalism, I, I think Karen Armstrong talks about this in her some of her books. Basically, fundamentalism can't exist except as a reaction to modernity and this form of evolution saying, you know, okay, we have science. Then you have these people saying, no, no, no. You know, as long as you would have kept, don't talk about science, we wouldn't talk about creationism, but it's a reaction. It's like an arms race. Susan Jacoby talks about this a lot in her book, uh, Freethinkers. With the Scopes trial, how secularists were like, all right, it's the end of theocracy. And then all of a sudden it it backfired and got worse than ever before. Well, apparently uh, Turks are the only people in the developed world that has less acceptance of the theory of evolution than we do here in the United States. All right, we're not the bottom anymore. <laughs> get proud, only, get loud. <laughs> <laughs> only 25% of Turks accept evolution and 50% of all science teachers question or reject evolution. What was their statistic? Uh, 25%? 25%, only 25%. Accept and we've got what twenty seven percent accept evolution accept, in, in the United not, States. Sure Depends on whether you mean naturalistic the, evolution or some of them concede sure. the fact that of common descent, but then say it's intelligent design or right. a theistic evolution version. Right. So I think we're roughly at maybe forty seven percent, maybe upper forties creationism in the United States, yeah. and the rest various forms of evolution. But still, way way behind Iceland, which says a lot about our status in the world. Well, things have been looking better for us on the legal front in the United States, dealing with creationism and intelligent design, especially after the Dover trial. We have an interview with Wesley Ellsbury, who was at the Dover trial and participated in it, and he's going to talk to us about how intelligent design and how the anti-evolution movement is trying to evolve or adapt to the new post-Dover environment. Joining us on the show is Dr. Wesley Royce Ellsbury. Dr. Ellsbury was the Information Project Director for the National Center for Science Education. He also is the creator of and a contributor to the pro-evolution website, antievolution.org. Dr. Ellsbury joins us to talk about the anti-evolution movement after Dover. I'm sure most of our listeners are probably familiar with the 2004 trial. It was a huge victory for defenders of science as well as a huge blow to the anti-evolution movement. I wonder if you might tell us something about their strategy before Dover. What were they hoping to get out of the trial? Well, intelligent design, as was determined during the course of the trial, actually was a simple relabeling of creation science. So intelligent design came about in its first foray in the book of Pandas and People that was at issue in the Dover case as a way of getting all the arguments that creation science makes into the school classroom, even when the Supreme Court said that creation science could not be taught in classes across the country. So intelligent design was a sham from the outset, and its entire purpose was to evade the law. So basically, the strategy is somehow to get as many of the 
anti-evolution arguments into the science classroom as possible. And that's still the emphasis after the Dover case. We're seeing this happen with a new labeling of arguments against evolution with the Discovery Institute publishing a book called Explore Evolution, which still contains the same arguments that we saw given under intelligent design. Now they're simply packaged as a criticism of evolution. The packaging keeps on changing, but the product is essentially the same? That's it exactly. Now, you personally were involved in the trial at Dover somehow or got to witness it firsthand? I got to witness the last three days, and I, in working at NCSE, we were consultants with the uh, plaintiff's legal team on that case. And much of my criticism of intelligent design concerned the arguments made by Dr. William Dembski, who has concepts that he calls specified complexity or complex specified information. Dr. Dembski was on the expert witness list that the Thomas More Law Center, the legal team defending Dover, uh, had put together. And up until uh, June 13th, 2005, we thought that Dr. Dembski was going to, you know, show up to his deposition. We found out that he had been withdrawn from the expert witness list the Friday before the Monday deposition. So much of the preparation that I made for the case personally simply was not relevant to what actually went on at the trial, but we had to make that preparation to actually be ready in case Dr. Dembski had stayed on as an expert witness and be prepared for what he would say. It's really a shame that he bailed. I would have loved to see uh, uh, Bill Dembski get the same kind of ringing that uh, Michael Behe received. I heard that that was one of the most embarrassing parts of the trial for the uh, anti-evolutionists. It certainly was evaluated such by people who are not named Michael Behe. Michael Behe thought he did just fine. Now, you, you have to consider that Judge Jones later commended Eric Rothschild on his cross-examination of Behe, saying that this was a model cross-examination that would probably be discussed in legal textbooks for a long time to come. Yes, it would have been interesting to see Bill Dembski on the stand. Uh, Dembski on his weblog and the run-up to the trial had posted this article about wringing the truth out of or squeezing the truth out of Darwinists, the vice strategy, which he illustrated with a, a doll of Darwin with its head stuck in a vice. And his proposal here was that this was a sequence of questions to be asked of various witnesses testifying on the pro-science side to lead them to say inconsistent things or otherwise unwittingly endorse intelligent design and demonstrate that intelligent design was a good thing. It's notable that Dr. Dembski did not choose to actually undergo the process that he so lovingly detailed, uh, actually uh, putting together, um, it would have been interesting to see how he fared when 
an actual cross-examination would have been made of him where you simply don't have the opportunity to digress away from unpleasant topics to bring up irrelevancies. The, your interlocutor, the, the lawyer, can always bring you right back to where you started from and say, but this was my question. Please answer the question, Dr. Dembski. Dembski wasn't the only person to bail out on that trial. Uh, it sounds like there were a couple of other people working for the Discovery Institute that did not uh, go through with. Uh, wh- what is your sense of why they did not go through with their testimony as was originally planned? Well, we, we actually don't have to guess very much of that because in an interview published in early 2006, Bruce Chapman, who is one of the high-up people in the Discovery Institute, was quoted as saying that on consideration of the facts in the case, that he felt that the Discovery Institute should not be involved in the Dover case and asked John Angus Campbell, uh, William Dembski, and Stephen Meyer, who had been requested to be expert witnesses for Thomas More Law Center to withdraw from the case. Because of the failure for the creationists at Dover, now intelligent design has been shown to be uh, what most of us already knew that it was, which is just another word for creationism, a religious doctrine that's trying to be taught in the school as science. Does that mean now that intelligent design is dead? Well, certainly intelligent design is no longer effective as the leading edge of the Discovery Institute's wedge. They can't use it as the thing to break open the science classrooms to having their arguments taught there. Now, intelligent design would be part of the back end of the wedge. Uh, What's going to be the front end? Well, apparently the front end is simply evolution. They have simply repackaged the same arguments that they were making as intelligent design and now are presenting it as a criticism of evolution. They have dropped any language about arguing for a designer, all the things that they found inconvenient in the Dover case. So now this is stripped down, refined, purified anti-evolution. It is simply we don't think evolution is capable of doing the things that biologists think it is capable of, and students shouldn't have to think that science is on the side of evolutionary science. It's all they've got left. It's all that they can rely on because they've been told, look, we, we found you out about intelligent design being a sham. Now they're just paring it down to saying evolution is bad. Uh, but it strikes me that in some ways this this might be uh, a more dangerous development because now uh, for people like us who are trying to defend science, we can't as clearly show that there that there is a religious motivation against their arguments. If they're not offering anything positive and just a critique of evolution, how are we going to go about battling their efforts? Well, certainly that is the reasoning that they're putting behind this. On the other side, you've got to realize that the arguments that they are making have a long, long history, have only been associated with religious objections to evolutionary science. So when you see these old, bogus arguments show up again, it's not like they just appeared out of nowhere. We know where they came from. 
They're not made by credible evolutionary scientists. They're not made by scientists doing research in the field. They are made by people with a religious, a narrow, sectarian viewpoint um, proposition that they want to get into the science classroom. And this is something that I think is readily, uh, you know, can be readily shown in a court of law when they get there, that when these arguments come up, it's like you see this argument in religious anti-evolution. You do not see it being promulgated in the scientific literature. You know, it's a dead issue as far as science is concerned. Why would we see this again? It's because these people are religious anti-evolutionists. It's because they have copied, plagiarized their stuff from the religious anti-evolution playbook. That's where it came from. We can demonstrate that that's where it came from. And due to the groundwork that was laid down in the Kitzmiller v. Dover case, that argument is going to have traction in the courtroom. So it, it sounds like it might not be all that difficult to defeat them in the courts. But what about the arena of public opinion? One of the things that's always bothered me about about creationists, about the intelligent design movement, is how they've been able to frame what they're doing in the terminology of critical thinking. Just give us the information on both sides and let us decide. Let's just look at the evidence for and against evolution and be able to decide that way. Um, that, I imagine, might... Uh, many people who are perhaps not educated on this issue will find that compelling and will find uh, and might look at uh, people who are trying to defend evolution and trying to prevent these measures from happening uh, as trying to suppress critical thinking, as trying to suppress meaningful dialogue. How would you respond to that claim and, and how, are, how are we supposed to try to, um, to demonstrate to people that these people are not on the side of critical thinking? Well, what you're bringing up is the fairness issue, and Americans are nothing if not wanting to at least appear to be fair. We like the idea of having you know, debates about things, um, setting forth both sides to be heard, etc. The problem here is that you don't really have two sides. What you have is science and things that are not science, that are masquerading as science, things that are misinformation that would actually harm our students. Uh, this is the thing that you know, it is more difficult to get across because it is a nuanced position, and for our side to have nuance while their side is able to pound on, well, it's only fair, you know, does make it look lopsided. But this is the case. It is going to take more work. It's going to take a lot of effort of scientists within communities to be able to bring their fellow citizens up to speed on what is going on. Why is it that we don't actually uh, want to bring up long discredited notions to students? Students should not have to spend time learning about things that actually have been dealt with for a long, long time. Students are only in school for a short period of time. They've got to learn real science. You know, we can't be pussyfooting around with continually bringing up dead notions 
and treating them as if, well, yeah, this could be a life possibility, when we know from the operation of science that some things are just wrong. You know, some things are, are just, you know, the evidence is against them, they're not coming back. Phlogiston versus thermodynamics. Phlogiston is dead, it's not coming back. 20,000 years as the age of the Earth, it's a dead idea. It is not coming back. There is nothing that's going to resurrect that. Students don't have to learn about young age of the Earth, apologetics for various forms of dating. You know, this is not something that they have to spend time on. This is not accountable science. You know, this is essentially where fairness runs aground. What's accountable? Can they show that what they propose to be taught as a side has demonstrated its worth in the scientific arena? This is something that I asked intelligent design advocate William Dembski. You know, look, I can find 900 articles in a literature search on cold fusion. Cold fusion is the prototypical physics not ready for school time theory. And yet we've got all this literature that talks about cold fusion. You know, why is it that intelligent design should get a pass on convincing the scientific community that it's a good idea? Why should the arguments of intelligent design, which are what is still being offered, get a pass on showing that the scientific community has found them credible and worthwhile? And Dembski's response then was, well, no, it doesn't actually get a pass. It should not get a pass. That They still need to make that demonstration. That's where you confront the people pushing fairness. Where is your demonstration that what you've got actually commands the respect of the scientific community? What can the average citizen, what can the average listener of our show who may not be a scientist, who may not be a teacher at a public school, what can we do to support good science education? What can we do to fight pseudoscience in our schools? Well, one thing is to get in touch if there is a Citizens for Science group in your state. Get in touch with them. Get involved with them. National Center for Science Education is a national clearinghouse for information about defending the teaching of science from incursions of anti-evolutionary pseudoscience. They are a very good group to support. They also give support guidance to the state group Citizens for Science. There are also uh, groups like the National Science Teachers Association, which I'm not sure whether they offer memberships to non-science teachers, but it's still good to know about groups like that that are organizations that have a vested interest in keeping good science education free of pseudoscience. Well, Dr. Ellsbury, thank you very much for joining us, and we wish you good luck with all your projects. Thank you very much. There's a lot of good things being done in the name of reason and science, and those responsible for it deserve our respect and gratitude. So, at the end of each show, we're starting a segment where we give props to an individual or a group that's making a difference. But there's also a lot of people that are deserving of scorn. So, 
you can tune in each week to see who's going to make it on our shit list. We encourage you guys who are listening to send in your nominations, and we'll choose some for the show each week. I guess it makes sense to start with a evolutionary topic. Ah, yes, this is the um, uh, rather su- surprising development. We have a group of physicians and surgeons for scientific integrity. That is, I guess, doctors mm-hmm. who doubt Darwin, you know, triple D. Uh, <laughs> this is to be found at www.pssiinternational.com. And uh, what this is is a group that is rather clever- cleverly, I think, joining the creationism, intelligent design, and evolution debate by encouraging or portraying doctors, these are people with medical degrees or osteopaths, uh, to to join up and pay a rather hefty uh, fee to join the entire group. But what they do is that they essentially, like I can just read from their mission statement here, they say, sadly, academic freedom is no longer assured in many countries. This is especially true when it involves espousing views contrary to the theory of Darwinian macroevolution. Mm-hmm. And they talk about instances where scientists uh, apparently, they say, have been censored or removed from positions for debating or allowing uh, discussion critiques of Darwin's theory of evolution, although they re- they constrain this to macroevolution, which I find rather curious there. They list some examples where doctors who have been uh, publicly vilified in their language or persecuted for criticizing Darwinian macroevolution. So for those people who don't know the distinction, microevolution is something they don't have a problem with. So things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria or... Uh, well, it's good to have a doctor that at least believes in that. That's just yeah. right. Otherwise, you'd still be prescribing the same thing. Well, mm-hmm. wonder why it doesn't work. Uh, whereas <laughs> More antibiotics. Macroevolution, apparently they have problems with the broader species, uh, species evolving into other species. So what I thought was rather clever about this is that they were able to frame the debate as they're persecuted, they're heroes of science, and that they are being, uh, you know, that, that consensus scientifically is actually a bad thing. They actually quote the author, uh, Michael Crichton, who's a medical doctor. Jurassic is he Park really? Thing. Yes, he is. At least he has that background. Yes, oh. and, and he says, and he's a critic of global warming. He wrote a book saying that oh, yeah. just because you have consensus on this doesn't mean it's true. So they rather cleverly package that in saying consensus is bad. You, you need these heroic scientists to debate and critique and poke holes in things. Well, the problem is in science, uh, cons- uh, you know, consensus is actually, if the evidence support it, supports it, is a good thing. That is, should we still be questioning gravity and germ theory just because somebody somewhere has a critique of that? And if you look at their criteria, these are not, these might seem impressive. They're doctors, and, and they, but these are not PhDs. These are not people that do research in biology and evolution and geology. They're medical doctors, which is rather like asking a mechanic for your car to give opinions on you know, physics or asking a chef to give opinions on nutrition and diet advice. These are a medical doctor, although quite bright, they don't do the actual research and evolution. You don't have right. to. It's cookbook stuff, fixing legs and things like that, diseases. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's, there's two fallacies here. One is an argument from, would it be ad populum? Sure. When if there's a popular mm-hmm. d- right. debate on something, they're, that means they're trying to say, okay, debate. look, right. it doesn't seem like they're spending a lot of ink on trying to critique evolution with this website as much as they're trying to show how many doctors have signed their list and are becoming affiliated with the organization. It's like these emails that the creationists will send out 
that go out and they have lists of people who have PhDs that deny evolution. Right. It's the as war of the doctors. Say, yeah, yeah. It's as if to say that because we have this many people that are skeptical, there must be a serious problem with this theory. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Anyone who can get more than 200 people to sign an online petition must be onto something. <laughs> I mean, they have to be right. Who? How else would they get that many signatures? I, I think in honor of Stephen Jay Gould, wasn't there a, uh, a list of just Steves? Steves yeah, yes, there was. Uh, they tried to show how, you know, what mm-hmm. a fallacy that argument was by just having Steves, seeing how many mm-hmm. Steves they could get. And, of course, they filled up as many signatures as any of these right. creationists. Just people named Steve. That's why I thought this was particularly sophisticated because they are correct in one sense by saying that just because the number of people or the proportion right. of people are saying doesn't make it true, which is true in a democratic sense and it appeals to people's sense of democracy uh, uh, or, or like that, that you're fighting against that. But in a scientific sense... That's a little bit different. Uh, when you have a scientific consensus that's based upon data, then actually, you know, you do right. tend to then say, well, if, if enough people uh, are on board because they have evidence to mm-hmm. say so, then therefore that's, that theory is... Yeah, you'll is also famous. notice that this is from the Christian Newswire, but I think it's also on their website too. Mm. It says, this does not imply the endorsement of any alternative theory, which is what... Ellsbury was saying to us is that now that intelligent design uh, doesn't have any ability to compete in the in the courts anymore, that they are going to just become skeptics of of evolution, Isn't not try a, to propose any other theory. That was part of the Discovery Institute's right. wedge plan was to first poke holes in right. Darwinian evolution and then introduce it as an alternative. Right. Well, apparently that's the the small part of the wedge is all they have left. Uh, but you know, you know, lurking around the corner is the is the idea that look, if evolution is wrong, then creation must somehow right. be clearly. Right. There's only two alternatives, right? Yeah. Even if they're not stating it anymore, mm-hmm. that's that's the implication. You know, right. this you, is, you set up a dichotomy, you poke holes in the opponent's position, and then you're you left standing by default. Uh, yep. yeah. Right. Whereas in science, obviously, what things work by having the weight of evidence uh, given to a position. That is, the theory is true if it has the the uh, proportion of evidence on its side. So that's why that made my shit list this week. Making my shit list this week is Congressman Vern Ehlers. Uh, this uh, this podcast is... Pre- <laughs> uh, don't feel sorry for him. He deserves it. Okay. Well, I'm over it. We do this podcast in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Bible Belt of the North. One of our local representatives here is Congressman Vern Ehlers. And... Had an opportunity to see him speak at uh, a local uh, CFI event. Yes, believe it or not, the conservative Calvinist Vern Ehlers actually came to a predominantly skeptical organization and gave a talk. So I should probably give him props just for that. Yeah, that's pretty um, ballsy. It right? is pretty ballsy. He had a, Way to go, Vern. And uh, I, I was glad that he came to talk to us. The reason why he's made my shit list, though, is because of the gross misunderstanding that he showed towards non-theists in the crowd. I can't imagine. Speaking as a Calvinist, maybe I would have expected that. But speaking as a representative of our area, of our country, he represents 
the atheists that were in the room, after all. I, Except I, I we felt can't really was... be American citizens. <laughs> Thank you, George Bush. Yeah, well, he, Robert Walker yeah. Bush. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> While he didn't personally make any such claims, mm. he wanted to make a big statement that atheists are becoming aggressive and they're making claims like religious people are superstitious, which he thought was highly offensive and inappropriate. So I had an opportunity <laughs> to ask him a question. And I basically pointed out that uh, what is said by angry atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, though it may sound pretty aggressive, basically all they're accusing Christians of is believing in things that aren't justified by reason. Whereas some of the nice things that come out of Christian pulpits, uh, you know, they're said nicely. They, they're said by somebody in a in a suit with a smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're basically saying that non-believers are going to hell. But uh, they want to save us. They want to save right. us from hell. Well, I just tried to point out the inconsistency to him. Just trying to point out that, look, if you find superstitious offensive and you want us to stop using that language, let's just be intellectually honest here and see the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. When I proposed that to him, of course, he totally evaded it and tried to claim that he's never heard anything like that ever come out of his church. Uh, a no, Calvinist, they, they feel a sorrow. conservative Calvinist. I guess he doesn't go to church very often. <laughs> they feel sorrow, I believe that was his word. They he, feel sorrow that you are not saved, but not there's no hatred speech. Yeah, right? yeah. There's, oh, no, well. there's no anger. Okay. So, Vern Ehlers, I'm glad you came and spoke to us, slowly atheists, but you still made my shit list. I, I, th- I find that interesting that they also get to reframe by saying, oh, it's not, uh, you know, we feel sorrow, we're not having hateful language, whereas they let the Bible do the talking by saying our eyes are going to melt in our sockets and we're going to suffer in various Like the Nazis ways. in Indiana Jones. Is there a, my <laughs> question is, is there a certain element there of, like, schadenfreude or shameful joy, like, well... We wouldn't have it this way, but God is going to send you to burn and suffer, and we're going to detail the ways in which you're going to suffer, but it's not us that's saying this. We're so just putting the information out there. We right. just feel sorrow. So <laughs> yeah. I guess my question is, would you be able, if you're a nice person, uh, like Vern Ehlers seems to be, would you be able to enjoy, enjoy eternity knowing that these other right. people of goodwill are having their eyes melted? Well, and I'm, sure they would find it, I'm sure they would find it very... There's uh, nothing hostile in that at all? <laughs> Sure, they'd find it very patronizing if we were to take the same the same approach. Like, look, I'm not mad at you guys be for being, uh, you know, into superstitious bullshit. But uh, <laughs> you know, I just feel sorry for you. You know that you uh, don't know how great uh, actually critically reality thinking is. about reality is. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, we don't have any fantasies though. Of course, they would find about that incredibly pretentious and offensive. Yep. We don't have fantasies about how much they're going to suffer though. And, and <laughs> right. to say no, that that's don't. not also partially aggressive is, I think, a little disingenuous. I think we're kind of we're kind of screwed in that respect. I, mean, I know we don't get to win. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no. They can always say, okay, well, you doubt as much as you want, but uh, you know, when you die, you're going to see that we're right. Our I mean, only punishment to is to like, irritate yeah. them in this life, <laughs> and that's the <laughs> worst we can do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, props. We ready for props? This is actually yeah. something good that Let's, a church has done. Okay. Color me confounded. Church. Lutherans ask bishops to keep gay clergy in ministry. Oh, this yeah. comes from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Margaret Ramirez reporting. In a historic decision, she writes, that could shift the future of their church's policy on sexuality, the nation's largest Lutheran denomination Saturday urged its bishops to refrain from disciplining gay ministers who were in committed same-sex relationships. Now, this is, this is pretty big, and major props for that. 
Now, the actual language of what they decided on is not yeah. quite as exciting as it sounds. Um, here's the official words in the resolution state, quote, The assembly prays, urges, and encourages the presiding bishop to refrain from or demonstrating restraint in disciplining those who are in a faithful, committed, same-gender relationship. So they're asked, urged, and prayed for to demonstrate restraint in disciplining homosexuals who are in committed relationships. Okay, so we're not approving it, nope. but we're refusing to to fight it. I suppose that's a, a pretty good step in it's, the right direction. Yeah, and of course, some the more conservative Lutherans are up in arms. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> anytime you start ignoring God's word on matters, you better watch out because you're in da- dangerous territory, says Reverend Mark Chavez director of the uh, conservative Word Alone Network. So watch your backs, because once you let gays go without getting kicked out, someone's going to get smoked. Yeah, they're going to be heading down the path of the Catholic Church. I think what's interesting is, uh, coming from a Lutheran, my my synod was was Missouri Synod Lutheran. So I believe that's the... They're much more conservative. Right. So what we're seeing here is actually very similar to what's happening in the Episcopalian Church, is that Mm -hmm. you're seeing schisms across denominations, which is very interesting. And, you know, we could talk about politics some other time, but that's what the Republicans have predicted in America, too. It's no longer Catholics, Lutherans, Protestants. You're seeing within a denomination that the liberal ones are doing, making our prop list yep. in that way, but the conservative ones are heading in a different direction, even though they're both Lutherans. Mm-hmm. And we see this with Catholics, too. There's liberal social justice Catholics, but then there's Conservative Catholics and Episcopalians, they're schisming in their church, too. I wonder if this is just going to continue to feed these evangelical movements. Um, oh, absolutely. And the, you know, the megachurches. It's, because it's a polarization, yeah. It's, it's an interesting realignment, actually. And then politically, that was part of the Republican strategy, too, was to split off. It used to be, you know, Democrats were Catholic right. voters. And then mm-hmm. you have, what they're doing now is splitting off within a denomination and saying, we want the conservative Jews, Catholics, and Protestants, and then the liberals. Right. Jews, Catholics, yeah. and Protestants go the other direction. Maybe we'll just have first liberal Presbyterian, <laughs> 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 and maybe we'll just uh, either that or have people sit on other sides of the aisle. Well, uh, that's a wrap for today's episode. Please make sure to send us any comments or questions or challenges or anything. We'd love to hear from you on the podcast. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, go to www.doubtreligion.blogspot.com. Apple Tree is produced by Grand Rapids' very own Love Fossil and is used with permission.